Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I'm Alex Andreu. I'm Roz Taylor. My name is Ian Dunn. I'm Naomi Smith from Best for Britain. I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to the Bunker Daily, where we talk to interesting people about the There's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and make a podcast on Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Bunker, our 1,000th edition. From its inception in 2020, The Bunker has gone from a weekly panel to adding Start Your Week to eventually coming out every single day. The show has covered everything from alien invasion plans and bug diets of the future to more grounded topics such as the crisis in Ukraine and all of Britain's many political machinations. It's also outlasted more Prime Ministers than there are members of the Bee Gees and done more to boost the economy than some of them too. Last year, we put the bunker panels on pause, but we realise we've missed them. And if our Twitter is anything to go by, you have too. So we're going to try them again every now and again, with a mix of bunker regulars and new faces on the big issues in politics. So without further ado, let's meet the panel. Andrew Landfill Indy Harrison is a man who needs no introduction. He's Podmasters Group Editor and one of the 50 most notable and regular customers of Holloway Road's Big Waitrose. Hello, boss. How are you? None more North London. All the way. That's the Waitrose where Morrissey used to go, apparently. I learn. Andrew, I think you are one of the most enthusiastic people I know, but also occasionally you're a bit of a pessimist. Yesterday when we were talking about this uh, this edition, you said, well, the next milestone is the fifth anniversary, and then said, if we're still all here, which felt quite existential at the I time. I don't like chasing things. I don't like, to, I don't like to tempt face. Did you ever expect to hit 1,000 episodes? Um, no, not really, um, because uh, when we launched it, it was only a weekly show. Uh, but yeah. then, of course, when you go daily and you're seven days a week, you, you rack them up pretty quickly. So <laughs> it feels straight. I've never done the 1,000th one, one edition of anything before no so we are now um, we're now millennium old here we are history <laughs> history makers yes i'll add it to you wikipedia Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> he pays me to edit it actually <laughs> uh we have not one but two special guests for this show today raf bear is a leader writer and columnist for the guardian and he's also a very good friend of the bunker and our sibling podcast oh god what now welcome raf thank you for having me back Raf, you first joined us in the bunker in September 2020 to discuss political psychology with Ian Dunt. You spoke a lot about Gavin Williamson and Dominic Cummings back then. Do their respective journeys to political obscurity surprise you? Uh, let's hope that they stay obscure for a start. I mean, they never rule anything <laughs> don't out. Tempt oh, yeah, exactly. Don't tempt fate. Um, 
Actually, no, because I think for both of them, they, they, they exemplify a phenomenon which is familiar from British politics for the last few years, which is that people can be good at the crafty game playing yeah. aspects of politics. And then as soon as they're actually put in charge of running something, guess what? It turns out to be much harder. So Gavin Williamson, what ultimately did for him was trying to be a secretary of state and trying to run the education yeah. system during pandemic. He was just very, very obviously not up to it. And actually, Dominic Cummings, great at writing 10,000 word blogs about how government really ought to work, put him in number 10 and suddenly it's like, oh, this has all gone wrong and it's clearly not my fault and it's someone else's business and crashed and burnt. So actually, you know, th- Am I allowed to call them complete frauds? Uh, lawyer, anyone here can advise me on that? I, I think I probably <laughs> can. Bullshitters, perhaps. Yeah. Bullshitters, yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise we, we were after the watershed. Yeah, there's all <laughs> sorts of words I could use in that context. No, I just think, yeah, essentially, um, yeah, they, they, they were all talking games and actually government is hard and they weren't up to it. But the wonderful thing about Cummings was that his multi-level brain, you know, four-dimensional genius intellect, he was outmanoeuvred by the Prime Minister's fiancée and her slowny mates. Yeah. He, he was not... He was not done over by a load of supervillains. Yeah, he was a blogger. I mean, essentially, he was a... And and, that's a very... It's a a particular skill. And people can articulate all kinds of clever ideas and absorb lots of very long and difficult non-fiction books uh, and regurgitate those insights. But then that is not the same as running a country. And it just takes a phenomenal level of actually kind of pathological arrogance to think they are the same thing. Clearly, they're not. With your expertise in psychology, we'll look out for more fraudulent slips over the rest of the show, I'm sure. Uh, Julie Norman is co-director of University College London's Centre on US Politics. Julie, welcome back to The Bunker. Thank you. Always fun to be here. Julie, you were also first on the show back in September 2020, which weirdly was on an edition that went out the day after Raf's first show with us as well, which we didn't know when we booked this at the time. Lovely coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> on that show, you discussed whether Trump could win a second term. It transpired that he couldn't in 2020, but who knows what the future holds, a little bit more jinxing of the future there. We regularly speak about Trump, and we will again today. But first, I want to ask you about a major legal decision in the US uh, known as Moore versus Harper. What was the legal argument there, and how much of a relief was the Supreme Court outcome? Yeah, sure. So this was a Supreme Court decision that came through this week. It came out of the state of North Carolina. And what essentially it would have done is let state legislatures set all election rules with no oversight, even from state courts. So in the U.S., it's typical that states set election rules, but this would not allow anything to be challenged by the court. That's districting, gerrymandering, how elections are run. And it was assumed that this would maybe get through the court. Instead, they said 6-3, no, there are limits to this. You still need to have some oversight. This was a big relief for many people in the U.S., obviously worried about a Trump resurgence or anyone looking to exploit the system for their own gain in the next election. Was this kind of federalism on steroids, basically, was what it was pushing for. Yeah, essentially. And again, it's the, you know, states' rights is a big thing in the U.S., especially for many conservatives. But this was just going too far even for many right-wing justices. And that was clear in the decision. Yeah. Was it the insane Trumpers basically calling for this then? as well. You know, it was some of them within the state legislature in particular, but even many just across the party, I think, would have been interested in this. But again, I think legally it was pretty clear this was going too far. So first things first, 1,000 episodes for a plucky political outfit such as ourselves is quite a big deal. Andrew, current company notwithstanding, who has been your favourite person to interview on The Bunker? There's been loads of brilliant people uh, to talk to. I mean, we're particularly fond of Roy Lilly who yeah. is our NHS expert. And we're talking to him again next week for the 75th birthday of the NHS. But Roy is just, is able to put the enormous complexity of the NHS 
uh, into very, very comprehensible terms. And he's also very funny. And he, yeah. likes, he likes to digress to talk about his, his uh, watercolours and things like this. But he always comes back to give – he gives me a better picture, I think, of the NHS yeah. than I get from anywhere else. He's been fantastic. Obviously, love talking to Alistair Campbell. Very entertaining, you know. Yeah. He, when you can actually say to him, Look, he was very intense. It's very intense, but also he does not mind when you say one of the reasons trust in politics has collapsed is that people tell lies when they're government. Are you perhaps a bit guilty for that, Alison? And he will come back with a decent answer. Yeah. Other people I really enjoyed talking to. These are these people are not my politics at all, but they were really great uh, and interesting interviews. Matt Zarb cousin, like hardcore mm. core minister when he was in when he was in politics. But his campaign against gambling is fantastic and he's very articulate and interesting on that. And it was great to talk to somebody who wasn't from your own, you know, I am yeah. kind of cap, kind of cap centrist, aren't I? And you know, similarly, Jeff Norcott, the comedian, you know, who I think I think paints himself as more right wing than he actually really is. You know, he's the famously he's the policy, he's the comedian on the right. Yeah. We had a great chat. Actually, it turns out he's not quite as uh, as out there as he portrays himself. It's quite nice when you get people who politically maybe don't seem totally aligned, but then mm. are really great. Great, like Ali Milani, for example. Mm-hmm. He was quite Corbynista and really good. And yeah. Jamie Driscoll was yes. also a really nice, interesting bloke to have. It's on a big too. old melting pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, more widely, I'm going to pin you down here. What's been your favourite episode? Well, I could say. Purely from kind of self-interest, I could say that the things that uh, tickle my nerd gene, like uh, Robert Eagleston explaining to me how Aristotle's poetics explain the Marvel Universe. That was a good one. Uh, Chris Hempstall explaining the politics of Star Wars. And that Mike, was great. That was, that was highly, yeah, privatised the Death Star. And uh, Michael Mulcher on Judge Dredd and Policing. So obviously that's me being very kind of self-interested. But I think, you know, one of the ones that I really enjoyed more than anything was... Um, I think the headline was something along the lines of the bored middle class that's destroying democracy. And it was about how the thing that's driving Trumpism in America and populism across the world is not necessarily left behind rust belters in the kind of forgotten states. It's actually very, very wealthy people in very, very wealthy states who've had, you know, absolutely fine lives, but somehow find themselves feeling a bit hollow as if there hasn't been a major moment of drama in their life stories the way there was in those of their parents and their grandparents. And they see this as their kind of their Second World War, their Vietnam, whatever their great challenge of their time. And it's, you know, that that is what's corroding democracy. The sort of second tier would be succession characters in real life. (laughs) It's like it's like cosplay revolution. So shall we fill people in a little bit on what we're going to do in the future? Because we're making a few changes around. Yeah, there. we're gonna we're gonna be changing things up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you may have noticed with this episode uh, the artwork is changing, so that's yeah. good. And you'll start to hear some new versions of our fantastic theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. We'll start to bleed in over the ne- over the next few weeks. We're also bringing in some new. I believe they're called franchises, aren't they? Franchise strands. strands. I think that's what we're going for. Silos. Yeah. Fran- Silos. 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 Silos sounds way too much like we've got a fucking management <laughs> consultancy. <laughs> I will not have that. <laughs> we're having all these things, but I tell you what, we're not having. We're not having verticals. No, no, no verticals. No verticals yeah. But there'll be new things about about politics around the world, about technology. Yeah. Um, we'll, we will bring back the the panel show as well every now and again. Yeah. We don't know exactly what that frequency will be, but I think next will be pretty soon. Yeah, it's all go at the bunker, and uh, we have to particularly thank all the patrons who have been with us, many of them since the very beginning, who have uh, helped all this happen, and in fact built this studio with their contributions. So, patrons, thank you very much. It has been an interesting few years, hasn't it? We've been through national convulsions, both self-inflicted, like Brexit and Boris Johnson, and externally imposed, like the pandemic and the cost of living crisis. 
It has been painful and maddening, but it's been populated by larger-than-life characters, and there has been a lot of action. With any hope, though, things might get dull again soon. But will we actually be able to handle that? The Guardian's Raph Bear had his own reckoning with finding politics a little too stressful when, as he explains in his book Politics, A Survivor's Guide, How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged, he had a heart attack. So can voters still high on Brexit, Johnson, Trust, Covid and culture wars ever come down and adjust to a new era of tedium? Let's not have anything too surprising in this section as well with you two on the panel here right now. <laughs> well, no I, I also no jump scares little, right now. Yes. Raph and I need to stay calm. <laughs> Completely. Uh, Raph, uh, is the issue not that people like Starmer are particularly boring, although you know some people might argue that, but more that we insist that they be interesting? It's interesting, isn't it? I think part of the challenge for politics at this particular moment is not just the fact that you know, we've had this, this exactly the period of, of enormous volatility, yeah. a sort of febrile political culture that you describe, but that in particular with regard, you had Brexit, which was simultaneously uh, a bona fide revolution, genuinely, in, in, in the literal sense, it turned everything upside down, the established you know, the economic trading political order that had defined British uh, geo, you know, Britain's place in the world for 30 or 40 years gets turned upside down. Um and also a massive fraud in the sense that so that's the second time I've used that word, but it's yeah, it all right, okay, a heist, a massive heist, you know, in the sense that you know, a, a bunch of people largely from the establishment uh, said that you know, they harnessed anti-establishment feeling and made a lot of promises that they couldn't keep. We don't need to you know, go into the detail of that or relitigate all of that. And so you have this weird sense that I think you only get one of those moments per generation, that level of of, of energy and upheaval. Uh, and then particularly when you attach it to a figure like Boris Johnson, who was very good at mobilizing optimism, the kind of the boosterism, and himself exposed as a sort of pathological liar, you know, someone who's completely estranged from the truth. Um, I think we're now in this weird hangover stage where we don't really know what kind of optimism and ebullience and enthusiasm could look or feel like when harnessed to realism and uh, just a more kind of honest appraisal of the challenges we're facing. And that's, I think, what you feel very strongly from both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak is that sense that they're trying to distance themselves from that that whole culture of of just the Johnsonian bluster, bloviating. But by extension, that feels like kind of acquiescence to decline and everything being a bit rubbish. And then on top of that, you know, in the aftermath of, of the sort of Liz Trust period in particular, you've just got these fiscal constraints where, you know, Trust and quasi Quarteng sort of essentially sort of blew up Britain's financial credibility. And I mean, we can argue about the macroeconomics of it, but broadly speaking, the leaders of the two main English parties are saying there's no money. And it's quite hard to promise people big dramatic change while saying, but actually we can't actually buy you stuff and so what you to and to achieve that you need a level of kind of charismatic storytelling uh and ambition about the future and vision that i think they just as men are not qualified to do they just don't have the capability for it you mentioned sort of once in a lifetime generational moments there part of that do you think though again a bit pop psychology is that the people have this desire to frame their own life through big moments too you know i think it that reminds me almost of like the world war ii narrative of the generations before us Things like Brexit and the COVID pandemic, whilst awful, do people actually almost have some sort of deep desire in their lives to have a moment that they can frame their generation through as well, do you think? 
I think certainly people want to like, like to feel a sense that of agency in the, you know that the, the what they're living through is meaningful in some way. That I don't think that one of the most kind of horrifying, demoralizing things is the sense that things are being done to you or that you're experiencing something and you just have no yeah. control and you're just a passive victim of, of events. And that's why take back yeah. control was such a powerful Well, that's what makes Brexit so horrible narrative. for both sides in a way because there are people who wanted it to be a major event that gave them something to do and then there is another half of us that yeah, feel like both people, Both sides us. now feel essentially that they were robbed by Brexit because the hardliners who really believe in it feel it hasn't been done properly and it's been taken away from them by Remainers and the Remainers think they were, they're completely vindicated. Uh, they want to say, I told you so and and no one in the political mainstream is articulating that view very well i just want to say that at the point andrew made earlier about uh this that sort of strange appetite for upheaval people are thrilling at the sound of bre- breaking glass uh is i think such an important part of this and there's a great line um clive james who's one of my favorite writers just a brilliant phrase maker here i won't remember the exact quote but he he talks about you know, a, a political system that achieves a kind of vibrating stasis that then some people, particularly in the sort of intellectual middle classes, find boring and bored, they start to play with fire. And they just sort of set fire to stuff kind of for the thrill of it. And there's a, lo- there's a lot of people who get on board with that, partly because they've sort of, they want to narrate themselves as the, the sort of the heroes of a struggle as opposed to just people bumbling along, getting on with their lives. Also, I mean, we've all had our anecdotal, we all shared our anecdotal crazy reasons why people voted for Brexit and, you know, everything from, I heard, you know, my mother's friend did it because she didn't like Sherry Blair, as if this was kind of the issue, a, a question. But the, the theme that seemed to unite it is I wanted to see what would happen. I wanted, it's like the big red button with do not push. Someone will push it immediately. And that was the kind of drama people were looking for. As you say, an appetite for destruction. And also particularly, I think there's a, Boris Johnson was, was an incarnation of that because what was what was brilliant about him, and I say that not as a kind of a, a moral judgment no. about his qualities he as was a human being, what was extraordinary about his political gift is that he managed to sell the idea of sort of smashing everything up and actually keeping everything the same at the same time. So it was all because it was all a bit of a joke and a game. And he had that kind of winking complicity thing. That he could invite yeah. people in to laugh along with him. And also he represented in his presentation uh, so much sort of implicit establishment continuity, his voice, his background, the styling. It just made it feel like a safe way of destroying things. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was very clever and very effective. And I think exactly as you say, Andrew, people... It sort of invited everyone to see it as basically a very elaborate jape that would sort of shake things up. But actually, how much harm could it really do? And it is worth saying on top of that, a lot of people have said, and I think it's a very good point. If it was really going to be as destructive and damaging as the Remainers said it would be, why would they even offer it to us? I've heard that a lot from Leave voters. Like, why would David Cameron say, well, we're giving you this choice. This is the ballot. You know, you can do this. You can do X or Y. And if he really believed that X would be an absolute calamity for the country, what the hell was he doing putting on the ballot yeah. paper? Which is a perfectly good question. As if it was sort of a weird experiment in nudge theory. Yeah. Like they were trying to push us towards something that wouldn't be so, so bad. I think it was all. a reasonable assumption for people voting Leave to think it can't be that bad. Julie, do you feel that when you look at US news as well, that things that were once 
front page are simply run-of-the-mill now. Oh, sure. I mean, I think Trump blew that up completely. And it's actually created a real challenge, I think, for journalists with even covering Trump himself with things that he's doing that in the past would have been so newsworthy. Do you put that on the front page still and give him that uh, that airspace, that time? Or do you just try and ignore some of these things? So it's created a challenge just around him in general, but around many other parts of, of politics, too. I'm even thinking of, say, the Hunter Biden case, that scandal that you know the right thinks should be getting a lot more attention right now. Just there's a lot of scandals and lawsuits and things going on right now that it almost seems commonplace. And I I would say to Andrew and Raf's points too, you know, the U.S. has, I think, suffered from the same, let's see what happens when we push the button thing too with with Trump. You know, there was this sense of, should we take Trump literally and or seriously the first time around? It was the sense of, yeah, let's see what he does. And the sense of disruption, which was such the trendy word, I think, in the 2010s and saying, yeah, let's push this and see what happens. And, uh, and we saw some of those results and might see it again. With that, Biden kind of, to me, shows the consequences as well of being boring and dull and sticking with the status quo there because he gets dragged into a false equivalence, doesn't he? When he does something that is completely out of the ordinary, it still feels out of the ordinary. Like when he had documents, even though he just forgot about them, but he gets dragged into being at the same level of Trump by virtue of him actually being so far off the same level of Trump. No, it's exactly right. And I would also say, I think that's one reason why Biden's approval ratings have stayed very low, even among Democrats, is this sense of it's hard to really hate Biden, but it's hard to really get excited about him either. So he doesn't galvanize the way someone like Trump does. But at the same time, when he does something that's even a little bit off the the straight and narrow, it gets a lot of attention. I do. I, I agree in particular also about this point about journalism really struggling to adapt to a politics where actually just the norms and the established parameters of what should be acceptable in a liberal democracy have have dissolved. And that 2016 election with Trump, it was fascinating because there's this concept coined by Jay Rosen, I think, who's a professor of journalism at Columbia University. And he talks about the cult of savviness Mm. in political journalism. Uh, This idea that people kind of observe uh, from very arch, ironic distance what's effective and what works as if it's somehow a bit beneath them to really engage in the ethics of what should work and what's right. And so you had this situation in 2016 where people were going, oh, I see. So actually completely lying and sort of flirting with fascism is quite an interesting device that seems to be tremendously effective and it gets you on Fox News all the time. It's like it is those things, but it is also fascism. So could we maybe start changing the way we do the journalism that, that, that responds to that? And I thought that we had some lessons would be learned from that. And I worry now that actually, I mean, maybe you can fill me in on this. Actually, it hasn't. We seem to be going straight back into that kind of normalizing something that really should be treated as if it is beyond the pale for liberal democracy. Yeah, no, I, I think, and you all as, as podcasters and journalists know even more than than I do on this, but I would say there's a real tension right now in the US in this lead up to 2024 with how to cover Trump and a, a lot of disagreements across journalism, how to do it. You know, are you objective? Are you impartial? Do you show all sides? Or is there a moral obligation to, to push back at some of this or some middle ground in between? And it's, I don't think there's any easy answers there. Well, Julie, me and you first started speaking when I used to work at Newsweek, and that was around the 2020 election. And I actually went to look back to think, oh, are there any articles I wrote that I could follow up with Julie about? And pretty much everything I wrote where I spoke to you there was about Trump. And it was, as you say, Raph, it was this kind of pontificating of being, this is really, really bad, but maybe politically, it's quite astute. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and you're like, well, how, how should I do that? And I'm not saying that he was then reading my piece of Newsweek and thinking, well, I'll do more of it. But it does create a wider umbrella narrative that doing bad shit could be quite smart, which is, yeah, a hard thing to avoid. Uh, Raf, you mentioned kind of the take back control catchphrase and stuff like that for Brexit. And 
a, a Brexiteer who we have in charge right now, Sunak, is all about focusing on delivery, even though he isn't really delivering at the moment. I looked and found a poll by the UCL Constitution Unit, which came out last year, which asked people to imagine that a future prime minister has to choose between acting honestly and delivering the policy that most people want. 71% chose honesty and only 16% chose delivery. So should people like Sunak just do the boring thing and fess up to not being quite up to the job when it perhaps feels insurmountable? Because people actually do want honesty from them as opposed to bluster or kind of crooked savviness which would just get the job done no matter what yeah i think there's two dimensions to that one you know i did the, the, the taking the second bit first the the politics of saying look this is really hard sorry maybe i let you down or maybe uh, yeah this is at the pushing the limits of my capabilities is the sort of thing you can get away with if actually you have a very high level of performance capability uh and so and both rishi sunak and and keir starmer strike me as people who you know, would benefit from that kind of message were they just more charismatic people. But then it's possible. So if they were more charismatic and they able to deliver that sort of message, they wouldn't have to yeah. <laughs> because they'd be charming people <laughs> on another basis. Um, and in and in terms of like you know, honesty versus doing what most people want, I'm a bit skeptical about that poll question actually for a couple of reasons. I sort of methodological alarm bells go ringing in my head because for two reasons. One, I think it fra- it's framed a little bit about you know it, it's sort of it's an invitation to say. Do you believe in doing the right thing or the grubby thing? And obviously, lots of people are going to say, well, clearly, you should do the right thing. Whereas actually, if it was a choice between lying and being dishonest to deliver something that you personally really want, you'll configure it as this is actually a really honest thing he's doing. You'll rewrite it in your head. You won't see it as dishonesty in pursuit of what I I want. I mean, this is why people, you know, know, putting... sending 250 million a week to the NHS on the side of a bus, people who really wanted that to happen would just not want process the fact that it was a tremendous lie to uh, in, in pursuit of Brexit. So uh, there's some sort of cognitive complexity around that question. Like, didn't didn't of... we actually run this as a live experiment in the 2019 election? Do you want the truth or a load of pleasing bullshit? And there was a, a large enough majority for pleasing bullshit. Yeah, that 2019, well, there's, there's some complicated there's things. Lot, also yeah, there's a lot going on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, interesting, I was in you know, Uxbridge uh, the other day, where this is going to be this by-election, Boris Johnson's former seat. And as you were saying, actually, I think earlier, Andrew, it's it's always interesting talking to people about what motivates their votes because it never resembles the sort of clear, easy Venn diagram categories of things voters ought to want. And so I was speaking to one guy who said, you know, uh, well, I thought Britain should rejoin the single market, furious about Brexit, just you know, didn't know who to vote for now because no one was really advocating basically rejoining the EU and said, you know, so you know, what did you do in 2019? Said, oh, I voted for Boris Johnson. I think, OK, that's interesting, interesting turnaround. But it was because you know, he, despite everything he felt about Brexit and Remain, mm. he really, really didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. So there's all sorts of, you, you, it's very hard to know yeah. what's actually going on basically under the bonnet of people's voting choices. On aspects of what people do want, for example, you know, we spoke about Johnson there, that he was this, he was the ultimate booster. He was the ultimate person of saying there is jam tomorrow is forthcoming, whether it was or not. Is it hard now that they feel like we're in a situation where we could do with a little bit of boosterism, but grifters have kind of eroded any faith in politicians saying things will get better you know, for example, the sort of Tony Blair, things can only get better. Would that work today or would people go, well, no, they fucking can't. It's got worse relentlessly for a, for a long time. That's definitely the feeling you get when you talk to a lot of people. That we, And also just how exhausted everyone is. It's just, you know, the whole political culture feels 
burnt out. And that's, you know, from not, not just Brexit, that was the pandemic. Uh, exactly as you say, I think Boris Johnson sort of evacuated all resources of optimism and boosterism. And then the, just the, the, the financial situation is, is nothing like it was in 1996, 97, when Tony Blair was sort of ramping up towards that. Things can only get, get better moments. So, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's right. I, I just, you know, also... For Rishi Sunak, there's a particular problem, which is that he, you know, he's got the gravitational pull of a 13-year Tory incumbency on his back. He's presented himself as this sort of new broom technocratic leader, just going to clear up the mess. He can't narrate the causes of the mess without basically incriminating himself because he was there. I mean, he can do a bit of pandemic in Ukraine. He didn't start the virus. He didn't start the war. But even so, you know, he's trapped in a very shallow present moment. And as a result, his actual promises, the five pledges, they're very short term. Uh, they, they don't really tell you a story about where Britain's going to go. And then equivalently, Keir Starmer is trapped. You know, he's also got a difficult issue with his own party's recent past and dealing with, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, being obsessed with the fear that people will think they will just come in and waste all the money and you know, on, spend it on stupid things that will blow up the economy again feels constrained by what he can realistically promise. So that's why I think we've got two leaders who are also trapped in a very dismal present moment and lack the technical communication skills to articulate a vision of the future that doesn't involve spending money on it. We've persistently had the kind of politics of you want this, you don't want this, so how about this, rather than this is something actually, actually new. What can a party sell if not hope that isn't just, well, less reason for a lack of hope? The default setting is fear of the other side. And that's why if you haven't got hope, yeah. if you do fear of the other side, and, and that's I mean that, clearly that will be the campaign that the Conservatives run. And actually, pretty much, you know, at the moment, although Labour won't, they don't want to articulate it that way. What's that twenty point poll lead? As it sometimes goes up to 15, 20 points, that articulates get the Tories out. You speak to people in anywhere around the country, you do not feel that poll lead as enthusiasm for Labour. You just feel it as people going, "We've just got to get the Tories out," which is enough to put Keir Starmer in number ten, probably, but not enough to give him a mandate to do something that anyone would even be able to articulate clearly what it is. Julie, has Biden shown quite a good example of being able to be? seem a little bit dull, seem just pragmatic, a kind of status quo politician, but actually get a lot of stuff done and have a real big side dish of that Obama-style hope that he was involved in? Yeah, it's a great question. It obviously depends on who you ask. I mean, on paper, Biden did get a lot done, especially in his first two years when he had Congress on his side. And uh, you know, many Democrats, I think, are right to tout that. But I think Biden knowingly did not go in with the same, you know, audacity of hope kind of message that Obama did. He was, I think, reading the writing on the wall correctly with where the country was. But at the same time, I think we'll be trying to bring that back in this election. I think Biden knows he just doesn't have the same charisma to galvanize in that way. But he has been very intentional, I think, in trying to reach out to that middle class, knowing that he needs to keep a lot of the communities that Trump took in 2016 and is being very intentional on how he frames things. So I, I think he's doing what he can with his message, but he, like, you know, Raph said, is, is somewhat constricted by the reality around him and then just the kind of politician that he is as well. Was he perhaps a little bit dishonest for what you might consider to be the greater good, for example, in that he, nobody expects him to do anything very big ticket and left wing. And then he did. It seems a lot, he seems a lot more left wing than he was presented as. Was that maybe a, you know, it was a savvy that you went, I can't sell this level of being left wing to the country, but I'm going to get in and do all the climate stuff I want to do because it's the right thing to do. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely some who read him that way. I think some was just a surprise to Biden himself with how much he would be able to do if he had Congress, which I think he didn't expect. When he got in, he was pulled a lot by the more progressive side of the party to push through a lot of legislation, a lot of big spending in particular. And you know, he did that. He went there. But at the same time, I think in these, the second part of his first term, we've seen him coming a little bit back more to that moderate centrist position that he initially ran on and that I think he'll probably lean into a bit more going into 2024. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. One of the recurring characters in the Bunker Cinematic Universe over these past three years has been Donald Trump, the grift that keeps on giving. I'm no Rudy Giuliani, but if I were a lawyer, I wouldn't be looking to take the former president on as a client anytime soon. At time of recording, he isn't in jail, but the charges he faces could technically mean a long stretch behind bars. It's been hard to keep track of what Trump is up to beyond acting like an angry dad lashing out on social media. Where are we at? What might play out? And is this going to roll on for so long that Trump could be present again before he even gets punished? Julie, from this side of the Atlantic, it's easy to get confused about Trump's legal troubles. Can you untangle them for us? How much time have you got? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'll say the, the one that's in the news right now is the federal case against Trump, which is all about him willfully retaining highly classified documents. And that willfully retaining part is key. He's not being charged for documents that they had and they gave back. Okay. It's the ones that he willfully was retaining. This is a case that most likely will not go to trial until at least as early as December, possibly later. It is very serious. It could entail jail time as a consequence. The Espionage Act is part of all this. Um, so this is probably the, the biggest case that Trump is dealing with at the moment. It comes on the heels of a spring indictment from the state of New York, and that one involved falsifying business records to um, uh, to cover up hush money paid to a porn star. So that is yet another legal challenge, and that is set to go to trial in March of next year. So already we are expecting at least two trials for Trump. Right now, the frontrunner candidate for the GOP to be taking place during that primary season in early 2024 and that's not to mention the other investigations that are still ongoing and might also lead to indictments, a federal one and also one in the state of Georgia. When it comes to that time scale, so you're saying sort of de- December is when it could start up. Is 11 months, you know, by, by November, the next election, is that enough time for these things to be wrapped up? It's really hard to say. I mean, the trials themselves will take a long time, especially this classified documents one. They always take a while. But when the main evidence is highly classified documents that no one's ever supposed to see, it's even more procedural. And I think even if they do reach some kind of verdict or finality, expect a lot of appeals, expect a very drawn out process from Trump as long as possible. I would note that he can still run for office and be elected president as he's been indicted and even if he is convicted. And so there are many who are already looking ahead to a potential 2024 Trump win, in which case um, he would essentially just drop these cases. He would then be 
in a position that his own Justice Department could plausibly just drop some of these cases against him. So we could see a race with Bunker, uh, Biden in his basement and Trump behind bars. Indeed, yes. <laughs> this leaked recording, allegedly of Trump, or at least someone who sounds very much like Donald Trump, bragging about secure documents. What is going on there? Yeah, so this is a um, leaked recording this week that made, was made public. I would note that the Justice Department had this recording before, so it was already part of the indictment. But now it's out for the court of public opinion also. It's a conversation that Trump had with um, writers who were working on a, a, a different book about his chief of staff um, and uh, and staff members. And this took place in 2021 at his golf club in, uh, in, in New Jersey. And essentially what happens in this conversation is Trump is trying to prove a point to these writers is heard ruffling through a sheaf of papers and identifies one that he says on on the, the audio which he knows is being recorded this was a classified document i'm not supposed to be showing you this um i could have declassified <laughs> it but i didn't um but it proves the point that i'm trying to make to you and it which involved military plans um against a, a state probably iran it's serious because it undercuts all the plausible defenses that we've heard from trump and his team first that he didn't have documents when he's it's clearly saying that he is, two, that he had declassified them previously, which he says on the tape he hadn't, or that uh, that just they weren't classified to begin with. And he clearly says that it was. So it's it's somewhat incriminating. It's a pretty key piece, I think, for justice. And again, right now it's out for public opinion to take in as well. He's just so hammy, isn't he? With the like <laughs> rustling of the papers even. It's like a bad radio drama. It's like a Simpsons character. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at this secret document that I'm holding here that I shouldn't be holding. <laughs> Julie, you mentioned Iran there. What are the implications of this on a geopolitical level of these conversations coming out, and particularly if he could be president again? Well, they're extremely sensitive, and that's why this case has such import. These aren't just documents that were classified because they were part of the government. They were highly classified because they related to very high levels of national security. And this is just the one that this one audio has been made public. Other ones we assume refer to nuclear capabilities of the U.S. and other states. So there's very clear um, security implications behind this for these to have been outside of secure facilities in general, but also just lying around bathrooms at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere. So that's not what you want for your top secret documents. I know there have been discussions about kind of Trump family splits around in the news as well, apparently him sort of saying bad stuff about Ivanka. But I wanted to ask you a follow-up here on what does this mean for, you know, Jared Kushner was kind of Trump's brain, it felt like. Whether he was a good brain or a bad brain, that's up to everyone to make their own mind up. But things like Iran was very important to him. Is this also going to make it harder for Trump if he wants to run the the Trump brand, if people like Jared Kushner are going to be severely annoyed at him? Yeah, I mean, one would think, and it'll be interesting to see which way Jared and Ivanka go uh, this time around, because they seem to be distancing themselves a bit, first after January 6th, and then even before all, all of this. Um, but Trump has a way of reeling people back in. And if he's flying high with a nomination, I don't think he'll be lacking for people who are willing to serve once again, whether they're inside or outside his family. Should we be looking out for more indictments to come down the line? A lot of this that seems to be coming out, as you say, is a kind of dripping of information from stuff we already knew about. It's just been made more engaging with his actual audio. Are there going to be tangible, more legal actions coming down for interface? 
Quite possibly. So there are still two ongoing investigations, one federal, and this is the Justice Department looking into Trump's role in January 6th and the overall challenging to the elections in 2020. Um, and secondly, a another investigation in the state of Georgia looking into how Trump tried to interfere with election results in that state in particular. So we're expecting pretty much any time now, but I assume by the end of the summer to hear from one or both of these investigations if they also be pressing charges. Are we? Do you think this just feels pointless, no matter what, though? Because, <laughs> and you know, that's it's a very jaded and depressing thing for me to say. But unless Trump gets real tangible jail time or some sort of punishment which really knocks him out of the the atmosphere of politics, it seems to me every time we speak, there are a certain number of people who will always like Trump, and there are a certain number of people who will always dislike Trump. And then there are people in the middle who will either switch one way or the other or be apathetic. And so the numbers just stay the same no matter what. It, the dynamics just feel like they stay the same. It's very true. I mean, Trump got actually a bump in his uh, poll numbers after the first indictment back in the spring and have stayed pretty much even after the second indictment over the last few weeks. I would note that he's leading his uh, next uh, contender for the GOP nomination, Ron DeSantis, by over 30 points in most polls. So he is really quite uh, quite far ahead and is holding quite a strong grip over the party with that said, you know, I think these cases, again, are coming together in different ways. I think some have a bit more tightness than others, some have a bit more merit than others. But with that said, these investigations, especially around these very high security issues, either around elections, around classified documents, um, U.S. democracy has already been taking a hit. I think if these things were not investigated, that would um, that would be a poor direction for the country as well. That's definitely the most demoralizing bit of it, looking from the outside, I think, the sense that, you know, first of all, yeah, that it shouldn't even have been close in 2020. And then after the 6th of January, it sort of self-evidently, it should have been all over, you know, that, that this is someone who's, who's it's complicit in an insurrection yeah. against the constitutional order. We don't even need to state, you know, restate it. But then there is this segment of people who, it, once you are, once you fully inhabit the sort of cognitive universe where uh, Donald Trump is there heroically battling a deep state conspiracy to try and repress the truth yeah. about what, you know, what ought to happen, what, you know, the true America is and will one day reassert itself. And it is that is the sort of the embodiment of patriotism that you believe in. Then anything that sort of attacks him or tries to bring him down is just reinforcing you, pushing you deeper into that corner. And, you know, the fact that that's any more than five or 10 percent of people is terrifying when you think about what it says about the actually the sort of connective tissue and fibers that you need to have a civil society to make a democracy work. So the sense that yeah, the, actually, the foundations of the American Republic that some of us actually care quite a lot about, you know, not as much as probably lots of Americans, but you know, some of us on the outside too, uh, feels so kind of sort of woodworm riven and rotten and actually shaking that. You know, that that to me feels like, you know, the next 2024 is, is, could be the most important year for the future of liberal democracy as a movement in British in human civilization. That's you know that sounds like a really grandiose way of putting it, but it feels really really important. It sort of harks back to the the almost Brexit psychology we spoke about in the first section, where it's that people want a, a narrative to to be a prism to put their life through, and Donald Trump has become that for a lot of people. It's almost he is the prism which gives them a purpose of what they're he's fighting against something and they're supporting him to fight against something, and that. That thing does not exist, but, but, but I, he's their prism there. But I worry it? that it's more that he's actually the expression of a kind of a terrible decay 
in people's or like a loss of the antibodies and the immunity that a political culture needs to have in, in, in its sort of bloodstream that just recognises fascism or, or extremism. Or it's like, you know, if you're on the tube and someone gets on and immediately you get that vibe like, oh, there's a mad drunk person, don't sit next to him, go somewhere else. In a democracy, there ought to be some visceral yeah. recoil from certain kinds of politics. People go, well, clearly that's a terrible idea. And if that's lost, you know, feel, I mean, again, it's a comparison that's overmade and it sounds a bit pompous, but it does feel like there's a point where, like, you know, the, the, the Roman Republic gave way to, to tyranny and despotism because actually just, you know, history sometimes makes those turns. And, and that's, it feels like that's the kind of thing that's in the balance. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he is an avatar, definitely. He's not a prism. He is... He's the embodiment of the things that these people want. And there's a refrain on the Lincoln Project podcast, which we were listening to a lot during the during the presidency, and it's incredibly depressing. Well, they just said, you've got to remember, 30% of people are batshit fucking insane. And that doesn't sound like sensible politics. That doesn't sound like analysis. But it may be one of the horrible truths there, that there's a large chunk in our liberal democracies of people who actually really fancy a bit of authoritarianism. And more than that, at a psychological level, I mean... I know, Jarvie, you have like, thoughts about like Trump being funny and that being part of his appeal. Yeah, but it's the humour of cruelty. It's the humour yeah. of it's the humour of the asshole. It's the person who says something genuine, deliberately offensive, and then says, "Hey, I'm just playing with you. Hey, it's just satire." The kind of person whose sense of humour is cruelty yeah. is what he embodies. So, all wrapped up in that package, you know, the love of authoritarianism, the disdain for rules. The love of cruelty for its own sake is something that we now know appeals to a huge chunk of America. Luckily, so far, we've not seen it tested in the UK. Johnson, for all of his horribleness, did not enjoy that kind of performative cruelty that is central to Trumpism. I think he also had limits, actually. I mean, I've never mm. very, I don't think I've ever put in print or even said on microphone much that is sort of enthusiastic or supportive of Boris Johnson. Do you think at some level, actually, he had an intuitive sense of, you know, even if it's just the vanity of his obsession with Winston Churchill yeah. and wanting to honour the the sort of post-war order and the idea of that actually, you know, fascism is a bad thing, that that it puts some kind of break on, on his behaviour, actually? Well, sort of, you know, Johnson is a kind of warped nostalgist imagining mm. a past that was great, that never really existed. Trump is just a nihilist. Trump yeah. believes in destruction and only himself. Yeah, and, and I, I would say people ask me a lot about the equivalency between Johnson and, and Trump. And, and likewise, I, I often push back at that too. I see them as very different kinds of characters. And um, I would be the last one to defend Trump. I would say that we had supporters supporting for many different reasons, mm. especially just voters rather than MAGA base. I mean, people supported him for economic reasons, for feeling, you know, alienated from kind of the, you know, quote unquote, the elite or the left or what have you, um, all kinds of reasons. And I, I would agree with, you know, what Jarvis said in the past that Trump is very charismatic. It's almost the opposite of the, you know, the person you cringe at that comes on the tube. It's like he he brings people in in a way and connects with people who have often felt very left out. And like, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I don't know how that happens all the time, but he is able to do that in a very unique way. I think how totally unbridled he is. I mean, that's where, you know, he's not funny in that it's genuinely amusing. He does not say things that I think everything he says because of by virtue of where he is in the world and the power he's had and the ramifications of him make him not funny. But he has this kind of timing and looseness and freeness in saying whatever he is, which I think is also a distinction between him and Boris Johnson. Yeah. Because I think Boris Johnson has a Boris Johnson has a vision of who he is and who he wants to be and how he wants to be perceived. Donald Trump sincerely doesn't care about anything but completely just moving himself forward. And that can be in a complete chameleon style way maybe because he doesn't have someone like 
Churchill. He doesn't have that myth of someone to go, this is who I want to be. Donald Trump is almost brand new. Well, my sense also, it'd be interesting if this is true from, uh, from your perspective, that what Trump also brilliantly embodies is that sense of... You know, that, that is pushing back against snobbery and elitism because yeah. he's such a because he's it, basically he's immensely vulgar and immensely powerful and that really speaks to people who think you don't need to have the stylistic idioms and the and the sort of the grooming of the old East yeah. Coast elite to be someone and be something important and that, that's really that reinforces that sense that somehow you know, Trumpism a bit like Brexit but on steroids was a revolution against. A weirdly, a kind of an oppressive left cultural proposition mm-hmm. that progressive politics has really struggled to kind of rebut and refute because it intuitively feels true to so many people. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'll just say in the 2016 election, I think Hillary Clinton's comments about the deplorables, I think liberals and Democrats like underestimate like, anybody's ever said in politics. How far that 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 I, sure. comment I think encapsulates so much of what not to, you know, to say other things, but that, that's that comment meant a lot to people. And I think it ended up being that dynamic exactly where, you know, when you talk to Trump voters, they say, look, other politicians, the media, they talk about us. Trump talks to us. And yeah. he's the first person in a long time who's done that. Well, I think it's, it's another distinction between Johnson and Trump there is that I actually think what you were saying, Raph, there, that Trump, even though he is obviously elite, he genuinely believes in pushing against that elite status quo that there is. Whereas Johnson... The establishment is entirely his milieu. It's it, what's nurtured him, raised him, and he wouldn't survive for a second outside of it. Whereas Trump has proved that actually you can completely break out of it and set up a different sort of you know, cultural power paradigm that just really isn't the one that has groomed Washington elites before. Has Trump done something permanent to the Republican Party and the base? Is what has happened to them something that will outlive him? You know, in that, like, people now accept things they would have, like, ejected a president for. Is this now a, is this a sea change? He's definitely changed the party. And I think it'll be interesting to see in 2024 and after how the party recalibrates, because there's definitely a rift in it on domestic policy, on foreign policy, and just the way of doing business in general. It's opened up the floodgates to people who are even more extreme clownish, if you will, than, than Trump himself at the congressional level. And in policy ways, I would say, has has shifted a bit more to a, a populist way of thinking in the Republican Party that was really absent up until this, and in ways that some policy positions actually overlap a little bit more with the left than yeah. they have in the past. But in terms of just the way of doing politics, it has shifted it tremendously. Is it because some of those people also, I spoke about feeling a bit jaded and things feeling pointless. Is it because the, the sensible people there who maybe would have shifted in a different direction depressingly feel the same way as me? Liz Cheney just clearly seems to kind of think maybe this is a bit pointless now. Yeah, I mean, I think she's interesting because I think she she went as far as she could with yeah. serving on the January 6th, uh, you know, panel and that kind of thing. But there's, yeah, there's just a very clear limitation to quote-unquote moderates now in the party, uh, even if they're conservative on policy, if they're just trying to not blow up the system, they know they have, you know, somewhat limited chances. They're constantly getting, um, you know, reviled. And just they're all in a position where if they challenge or confront Trump too hard, they know they're going to lose that 30 percent of the party that is so avidly behind them. So a lot are trying to walk this tightrope. And you mentioned the prospect of two trials happening simultaneously during the campaigning season. That has made my blood run cold because I'm just imagining <laughs> Trump in the dock using the dock as a campaign pulpit and answering every single question with the liberal left, make America great again. 
Oh, is that what we're in for? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the way he's responded already to the indictments. And I think he's just savoring the moment to be able to have that be his stage, if you will, during that period. And to our earlier point, I, if he does get through the nomination cycle, um, these things would hurt him in a general election. You know, the independents, the more moderate Republicans, this this would hurt him in a general. But um, but I, I would see in the nomination process, this would just, it'll give him the headlines, it'll give him the airtime, and it's when he's best, when he can play the victim and, uh, and, and play the victim of a witch hunt in particular. This slightly brings us back to right where we started and sort of the, the a potential appeal of a slightly more boring politics. Is there a, a segment of American voting opinion that would respond to the, a message of like, could we just not go back to that? We've had that for four years. Let's just not do that again. Even if they were sort of sympathetic in 2016. So not a partisan pro-Democrat thing, but just the kind of, let's just not have that live that nightmare again. Oh, absolutely. I would say there's, you know, po- Trump is polling a little over 50%. So there's about half the party that still, I think, would prefer someone else. But it's almost this catch twenty percent 20- among Republicans. Republicans, okay. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, good clarification. Um, but it's almost this uh, this catch-22 that the more candidates who are willing to challenge Trump, the more it splits the vote against him. And so that's why he's just holding this majority or and, and most likely at least a plurality. And so they would all need to kind of combine forces and combine forces of all their voters. And I, I think that's unlikely, at least in the short term, possibly by the time we get to the spring. I like Raf's idea of making America boring again. As a platform. <laughs> Indeed. Mapa. Mapa. <laughs> I'm going to start making We've come to the end of this special edition, so we're going to finish with a bit of culture. In memory of the Culture Bunker edition, we ran for a little while. This is the Bunker Reading Group, where we ask the panel to recommend an article or piece of literature to our listeners. Julie, what have you been reading? Yeah, so I'd recommend two, actually, if I'm allowed. So one, uh, one's a nonfiction. If you are trying to understand some of the motivations of Trump voters, I would recommend Strangers in Their Own Land by Arlie Russell Hochschild, which is just a very compassionate, dignified engagement with Trump voters in a specific part of Louisiana. And it's just wonderful um, uh, oral history, uh, journalistic kind of storytelling, and it's just a fantastic book. And on the fiction side, I'd recommend a new book called Black Butterflies by Priscilla Morris. It was just shortlisted for the Women's Prize. And it's based, um, it's set in Bosnia in the early 1990s during the siege of Sarajevo and based on her own mother's memories. And so as uh, someone who studies conflict in my non-US uh, hat, I, I found this a really interesting novel and one that I recommend. Uh, Raph, what are yours? Oh, I'm not allowed to recommend, recommend my own book, am I? So, that's, uh, that's our job, Raph. Yeah, yeah okay, we'll plug so that away. That. Um, I'll, so, yeah, so I, I'm, I'll do two as well then. So fi- the fiction book I'm reading at the moment is The Promise uh, by Damon Gulgut, uh, who's a South African novelist that won the 2021 Booker Prize, I think. Uh, and my family is, is South African, or at least for one generation. They've moved around uh, the world. But it's just a, a really elegantly told story of, uh, sort of family neuros- neurosis and breakdown. Uh, straddling the period where apartheid was falling apart, and then you know, post-apartheid South Africa, and it's just a it's just a great novel. I uh, don't really have much more to say than that. Uh, and then the non-fiction, actually, is one of the privileges of having a publisher. Is I'm reading a book that isn't out yet, um, but it will be out uh, in, in the autumn, and that's called Time After Time, and it's Chris Atkins. Now he was a documentary filmmaker who uh, basically got involved in a tax fraud. 
to fund one of his films, did some time in Wandsworth Prison, wrote a very good book about that called A, a Bit of a Stretch, about which is basically his prison diary, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. This is the follow-up. It's called, uh, and it, did I say time after time? And it's about uh, sort of the chronic reoffending and how rehabilitation fails. And it's just the sort of pen portraits of career criminals and how the system lets them down. And it's just, it's very gripping and very nicely written. Andrew. Well, I'm afraid I've got to stay on brand, job. It's a comic book. Uh, it's uh, it's called, and I, me- I have mentioned this previously on, on the podcast, but it's so fantastic. I have to mention it again. It's called The Department of Truth by writer James Tinian IV and the artist Martin Simmons. And essentially what it is, it's a modern X-Files. It's a conspiracy book. But the X-Files, of course, it was from a quaint time when conspiracy theory was fun and it wasn't destroying our democracies. The Department of Truth is the modern take on that. It's about the conspiracy mindset and what it does to reality. And... Tinian has found this fantastic way of dramatising in a kind of fantasy manner what conspiracy theory does to our brains. You know, we all know someone who's fallen down the rabbit hole and they no longer operate in the same, you know, epistemological universe that we do. He dramatises it in a, fant- a fantasy manner. It is, it's not I want to believe, which is what the X-Files is all about. It's like what happens to you when you do believe? What happens to the world around you? It looks amazing. It's the most beautiful impressionistic art. People who know comics, it's like Bill Senkiewicz's art, all kind of scratchy little impressionistic half half uh, half scene images. The reveals and the twists are great. And the, re- the reveal and the twist at the end of episode one is one of the great ones in all of comics. And it's so good that I would recommend it, even to the people around this table who don't read comic books. <laughs> the Department of Truth, there's four volumes out, and you really, really need to read it. I'm going to go with the non-fiction fiction double whammy, like uh, Julie and Raph did there. So I have just been finishing reading a book called Traffic by Ben Smith, who used to be the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. This is also a bit of plugging, because we've done a Bunker Daily on it, which is out now, if people want to listen to it. But just a really interesting story about how BuzzFeed and Gawker all kind of just seemed to almost happen by accident and then it was a load of just kind of people who didn't like each other having rivalries and that then fundamentally has changed the way media work, which I found very interesting as someone who came into the media at a time where it was sort of like, I'm going to work for a local paper, but the most read stories are about where can I get Greg's sausage rolls now or whatever and people didn't really read the local news there. And then my second one is I am... This is my comfort novel, which I'd recommend to anyone at any opportunity I get to. But I'm listening to the audio book of Stoner by John John Williams, which is just my favorite book ever. And if you haven't read it, you really, 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 really have to read it because it's just a really beautiful book. And I'll take any opportunity to to recommend it. It's sort of a, a story of a person's life, which if I tried to explain it to you would sound really dull. And that is kind of the point. But it's just written in a very nice. <laughs> the new boring. Way. Yeah, back to the new boring. <laughs> it's the new boring. It really is. Whenever I try and describe it to anyone, they go, "Why would you possibly read that book about a guy who lives on a farm and then goes to university and kind of likes it?" The interesting thing about just going back to the Ben Smith thing. So I know Ben a little bit because we worked together many, many years ago as we were correspondents together at the same time in Latvia at the beginning of our careers. Um, he wrote a piece. He was at Politico for a while, yeah. And he wrote a sort of a mayor culpa piece, basically saying, "I." sort of helped invent this kind of horse race journalism, which is very much that sort of savviness problem that I was talking about earlier, uh, and said, you know, we, we are partly responsible for being so obsessed with the who's up, who's down, the sort of the processology of what works in politics, 
uh, that we ended up being complicit in a kind of stripping some of these sort of ethical judgment out of it. And it was, so he's, um, yeah, he's a very interesting guy. I'd, I'd second the recommendation of his book. Yeah, I definitely, Not just because he's a friend of mine, but because yeah. he's a good writer, the clever journalist. Yeah, I definitely had to sort of notice that myself recently when I was putting the boot in on a local newspaper story that I thought was particularly terrible and then remembered, well, I started working for the like the trending content hub for a publisher <laughs> when I was there because they were like, you're young and you can write really, really quick. And then I just did. And then now I look and go, oh, great, that is all the news that there is now. You're the Robert Oppenheimer of And on that note, that is the end of the panel edition of The Bunker. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) Raf, thank you for joining us. Uh, Always a pleasure. Thank you. Julie, thank you for your time again. Thank you. Always lots of fun. And thank you for joining us. Come back for another episode of The Bunker tomorrow, and we will be back with another panel show soon. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with... Oh, that guy sounds rubbish. 1000th edition of The Bunker was presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison, Julie Norman and Raphael Baer. The producers were Liam Tate and me, Alex Reese. here since number one. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Here's to the next 1000.